What If the Len Bias Story, hosted by Jordan Ritter Khan, is the Ringer's latest narrative podcast. Episodes one and two launch on June 9th, and you can find new episodes every Wednesday on the Book of Basketball 2.0 feed. Here's a quick trailer. You've heard his name, Len Bias, 1980s phenom, second pick in the NBA draft. And then cocaine, tragedy, one of the most shocking deaths in sports history. 35 years later, Bias's legacy is still making an impact. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, this is What If, the Lynn Bias story. I'm Jordan Ritter Khan. This episode is brought to you by Pure Leaf Iced Tea. Great iced tea takes you somewhere else, like new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea that we have here at the Spotify Studios and drink quite a bit, where unexpectedly blackberry flavor transports you to a very delicious place. So refreshing you may never want to leave. You will eventually have to, though. But take your time. Try new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Visit Amazon.com slash Pure Leaf and enter 20 Pure Leaf. That's 20 Pure Leaf for 20% off your purchase of new Pure Leaf Blackberry iced tea. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled over easy or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Doma Media. Thank you, Yola Tango, as always, for the intro music. Speaking of Yola Tango, you should check their website or the Instagram. Uh, I believe they have some live dates. And it's not just Yola Tango. It's every single creative profession uh, that's sort of been locked down for months on end is finally able to go out there and uh, please support them support the creative arts, support musicians, support comedians. I'm excited to do so. It's the benefit of getting vaccinated. So if you haven't done so already, please do so. And speaking of the creative arts and supporting them, we have one of the most creative, one of the most intelligent, most accomplished people I know. My good friend Alan Yang is our guest today on the podcast. Christian and I and Isaac get to chat with him about his New season of Master of None that's on Netflix right now. A different approach than the previous seasons, and I think it's incredibly well done. And uh, we go too, we don't go too deep into it, but I just want to give everyone a heads up. If you listen to it, there are some spoilers in it. So I don't think I'm ruining too much uh, in this day and age where it's hard not to have a show spoiled. But if you want to watch this and not have it ruined for you, about halfway through with the interview with Alan, there are some spoilers, so just a heads up. But if you've never heard of Alan Yang, he helped me win a million dollars for Who Wants to Be a Millionaire as my smartest friend. He's been a screenwriter for Parks and Recreation. He made his directorial debut with Tiger Tail, also on Netflix. You should check it out. It is a beautiful movie. And Alan is somebody that I think is incredibly important for Asian American representation because he's at the top of his game. Uh, 
He's somebody that could have done anything, whether it's a doctor, lawyer, banker, engineer, and he chose to find his calling in comedy writing. And now he's directing and he's producing and he's working on a new show with Maya Rudolph and uh, just somebody that I feel like we should study a lot more of and is certainly a template if you're thinking about entering Hollywood as an actor, as a screenwriter, as a director, as a producer, somebody that we can all sort of study. And uh, if you are thinking about it, you should learn about how Alan Yang did it. Uh, we have a, another podcast with him. We did it probably like two, two years ago. Uh, he's been on a couple times. And I think this is his third time on our podcast. Hope you enjoy it. So before we get into that conversation, just wanted to talk about a few things. When I was last in New York, when we were filming for this Hulu show that we're, we're doing, I got to eat a lot of pizza. We talked about that with, with Chris and Isaac uh, a couple weeks ago about all the pizza I consumed and how I like to eat pizza. But uh, I did save the best pizza eating for me at Lucali's, one of the best pizzerias around, one of my favorites. And I just wanted to give Mark the owner chef, a shout out because he just announced his new slice shop. That is about, uh, I don't know, a two, three minute walk. He showed me the space. It's beautiful. I can't wait to go back to Carroll Gardens and check out his new slice shop. I can't remember the name. I think it's like Luke's something, but uh, if you haven't been there, go check it out. It is one of my favorite, favorite, favorite restaurants. Um, I also finally got to go back to Gardena and eat. I had a, uh, a wonderful dinner at Otofuku. It's a restaurant that we featured in Breakfast, Lunch, and Dinner with Lena Waith, who's also the main character, uh, Denise, in this season of Master of None. And I got to show her some of my favorite eateries in Los Angeles, particularly in Gardena. Gardena and Torrance, but for me, I know Gardena a lot more than Torrance, uh, has some of the best Japanese food and best restaurants, Otofuku being one of them. It is very unassuming. You could drive right past it. Uh, the entrance is actually not the front entrance. It's on the backside. Uh, you can still dine outside. It's a restaurant that wasn't able to do as much delivery and takeaway as possible because a lot of their food isn't meant for that. So, I think it's really important that you support restaurants like Otofuku and you go there and you eat and you spend as much as you can because restaurants like that are so important because there's not many restaurants like Otofuku in Los Angeles or in America for that matter. And, you know, it's technically an izakaya, which serves a sort of a hodgepodge of a, a lot of things. They have great soba. They have great udon. They have great sashimi. They have great daily specials. Their tempura is great. Their, their tempura sea eel is fantastic. Their dashimaki tamago is great. Literally, everything they make is really good to great. And I love this restaurant so much. Otafuku in Gardena. If you haven't been there, please, please go. And it's not like, modern Japanese or what you might think like, you know, a Japanese restaurant might be. It's the kind of restaurant that if I did live closer, I would eat there all the time. And it's just the kind of restaurant that people don't open up anymore. And I, I'm not sure why, but it's a special restaurant. I love it very much. And, um, we need to support restaurants more than ever. And, that hasn't changed. And a lot of restaurants that are coming back online, they need your support. So 
I'm going to try my best to always tell you guys places. Clearly, I'm in Los Angeles here right now. I'm going to be focusing on that, but I'm going to be traveling a lot more and I'm happy to shed light on places. I, I, I wish I could just do it all day long because um, I love this business and I love the people that work in it. And um, restaurants like Otofuku should be very much cherished. Um, also, just another note, if you haven't seen it on Netflix, High on the Hog is streaming. It is an incredibly important TV show uh, with Dr. Jessica Harris. Stephen Satterfield is the sort of host of the show. I want to talk a lot more about it at a later date, but go watch it. You may not be familiar with Dr. Harris, but uh, she is an incredibly important figure in food, and it's just a beautiful show. And honestly, I don't think there's anything like it. Uh, I've never seen anything like it. And uh, if you you care about your food and American food ways, this is a very important show. So watch it. It's moving. It's delicious. Uh, Roger Williams directed it. It's just a great, beautiful show. So go check it out. Um, wanted to give you one more, uh, a couple more things. I've been grilling a lot more uh, since the weather's gotten a little bit nicer. And one of the things I've been messing around with is cooking more pork ribs. It's mainly because uh, my wife is pregnant again and she is having different cravings. <laughs> and a kebab shop that, again, I, I, I won't tell you where, they do these skewered ribs. And I was like, wait, they're so delicious. They're chewy, but they're not slow cooked. They're not cooked for three, four hours. They're not braised. They're just cooked hard and fast on a grill. And that's what I've been doing. And, and I've done a few batches. Some I've cooked in any day uh, to sort of speed up the process. But I actually don't think I need to do that because I've tried it out where I've just marinated. Marinate's not the right word. I have cured my pork ribs, spare ribs, in Momofuku savory salt. I'm saying Momofuku savory salt because we made it because it's awesome. So you should really have it. I go through so much. I use it for everything. Uh, eggs in the morning, just about anything I need to season, that's my go-to. The spicy salt is fantastic, but I've been screwing around a lot more with just using savory salt as the cure. And I'll do that like an hour beforehand and I'll cut all the ribs so they're just sort of riblets. And then I'll get the grill nice and hot with all the charcoal white and I'll move it to the side and I'll cook them all on the, the slower side, which is still ripping hot. It's probably like 400, 500 degrees. And I don't really move it around. I'm basically just cooking them hard and fast. And 20, 30 minutes later, they're nice and caramelized. They're beautiful. I squeeze a little lemon juice on them and they got chew. They're not fall off the bone. They have texture. It's a lot like eating flanken or some version of kalbi where you have chew. And I think this is an important thing to talk about because a lot of people assume when you're grilling ribs or making cooking pork or beef that have a lot more sinew and a lot more cartilage or just muscle fibers that need a long cooking process which give you that sort of succulent fall off the bone type of texture, which I think is fine, but I just feel like it can be overcooked. 
And you see on social media, a lot of people taking the bones out of <laughs> like ribs and stuff like that. That's just too much. I want texture in my food. And I think what is really underrated, I should be saving this for my opinion as fact, but eating ribs that have chew, it's still soft, but it's not something that's just going to like disintegrate in my mouth. And I really, really encourage you guys this summer to cook ribs like really hard, really fast. And, you know, shamelessly plug in my own salt, but it really is delicious and give it a shot. I promise you it's going to be a different texture. It's not going to be overly chewy. It's still going to be tender and it's a kind of flavor that I really am craving a lot. Not just myself, my wife is, and uh, I think I'm going to continue cooking this way. I can do ribs in 30 minutes. It may not be the kind of rib tenderness that you're used to, but I think we need to sort of introduce different textures in food. I'm a big fan of texture, and I just basically gave you the recipe. Cook your ribs hard and fast, 30, 40 minutes tops. Just make sure it doesn't burn, and uh, you're going to be pleasantly surprised at how delicious it can be. Um, And lastly, I wanted to talk about one more thing because it sort of ties into Alan Yang, whose family is from Taiwan. Another thing I've been consuming a lot more, and I've talked about it a little bit on this podcast, is boba. I have not really been a fan of boba. And I think maybe it's because I've never had great boba. It's fucking good, man. And I'm I'm enjoying it. I didn't, maybe I, I've had boba years ago and I remember it being a novelty, but I think boba has gotten a lot better. It is time consuming and the tapioca when it's made fresh can be really luscious and soft. And man, there's some really great spots here. I don't actually want to talk about the boba tea, which is great. I mean, all of the flavors, whether it's milk tea, uh, whether it's a smoothie, whether it's like a hibiscus tea, I've tried so many different shops. I'm actually not here to talk about the tea. I'm here to talk about how these boba shops, many of which are Taiwanese owned and selling Taiwanese food, their food is awesome. It's really good. And for the most part, a lot of these shops, again, if you're listening to this and be like, of course, dumbass, this is normal. Like, I'm just telling you, I have not been familiar with boba tea culture or the food that's served in boba tea uh, shops. And the fried chicken they have is delicious. The French fries are delicious. And usually they have the house salt. I don't know what is in it. It's great. They also almost all serve takoyaki, which is Japanese and If you don't know what I'm talking about, just order it. It's delicious. Yes, there's a little chew, and that's going to be octopus in the center of these beautiful balls. They're very similar to the Abelskiller. I can't pronounce it, the the, the Danish thing, Scandinavian sort of pancake ball. Um, Some have more foods like minced pork on rice, but just in general for me, I've really come to appreciate the food that is served in these boba tea shops. And uh, I'm accumulating more information. I'm going to share it with you guys all, not necessarily guide, but that's all I wanted to say. I, I think I've rambled on for close to 15 minutes. That's too long. Apologies. So I'll shut the fuck up and let us get into our conversation with Alan Yang. 
Go check out Master of None Season 3, and I'm excited to see all the other shows that he's working on. And again, stay tuned. Be careful. There are spoilers. Don't want to piss you off if you are planning to watch it and you haven't watched it yet. Alan, how many podcast interviews have you done so far the past week? I've done a lot. Oh, man. Um, there's still more coming, but yeah, it's all blurring together, man. It's, it, Christine will tell you, like, we're in New York right now, and it's like the writer's room and then meetings. We're interviewing people to hire for the show and then and then press. So it's like, okay. And it's, by the way, all has to be your house for the most part. So, hey, uh, there's a photo shoot and they they come over. It's all your house, right? So it's like, okay, now get ready. And then it's in your house. And then it's like in your house. And then it's like everything's in your apartment, right? So I'm not complaining, not complaining. It's all part of the gig. But it is funny to, to to just do it all. So it's like it's all your your house is a podcast studio. Your house is your writer's room. Your house is your whatever, right? It's it's everything. So, and your house is also a gymnasium where yeah. you're logging in maybe twenty thousand steps a day right now. Yeah. More importantly, how many steps have you taken in the last week? Everyone who knows me knows I'm a steps freak. I'm a steps freak. No, so it was basically in the in the regular writer's room, like previous shows, every other show I've ever worked on. It's like I'll I'll walk around as we're writing the show, which is weird on the one hand, but also kind of okay because a writer's room is a pretty casual place and you generally have a little bit of space. So I like to pace around and, you know, it's okay, right? You're there, you know, you're, you're working all day, you're pitching whatever stories, characters, jokes, whatever. It's okay to walk around. Now, since we're on Zoom, I can't do that, right? So I need to be in front of the, the computer. I need to look at the screen and, and kind of be visible for our writers. So I, I was like, well, here's the here's the compromise. Uh, my girlfriend Christine suggested it. She's like, you should get a treadmill. You should get a treadmill to go under the the desk or table or whatever. So I was like, okay, I'll try it. So I got a really cheap ass one from like China or something for LA, and then I I, I got it and and uh, it worked pretty well. And so I was like, oh man, like this is pretty good. Like maybe I'll get a real one. Maybe I'll get like a treadmill that that actually works. But the first day I did it, I walked about thirteen miles. And then Christina was like, it's too much. <laughs> like, you got to stop walking. Like, you got a treadmill. You got oh a treadmill God. for for your writer's room. But I just walked all day while we were working. So it ended up being, and then I, I did also like, then the other thing was I had a meeting with somebody later that day and he suggested like, let's go for a walk. I was like, great. So then I went for a walk <laughs> with this guy. I was like, oh man, just attacking on two, three miles to this. But yeah, I have a lot of energy for people who don't know me. And uh, I have a lot of energy. Got to burn it off. Got to burn it off. So now I'm trying to get down to like, on Mondays, I'll do 10. Then Tuesdays, I'll do like nine. Then Wednesdays, I'll do like eight. And then I'll taper. And then on the weekends, I'll, I'll do, do, be a little more relaxed. Well, but but yeah. people may not know this. Alan Yang is a healthy eater and drinker. <laughs> mm. That is not true. That's emphatically no. not true. Well, lunch is lunch. No, is not healthy. Like you, you, eat, you, you don't eat, you eat a healthy lunch. But you like you go out to restaurants. Oh yeah, that's what I, I mean. I, that's, that's what I mean. You're a healthy diner. You like yes, to eat. I, not, not a healthful diner. No, I'm no, a, no. I'm a, I'm a, I eat a lot. So that's why the writers were accusing me of like, oh, you you. So you work out every morning. You you walk ten miles. You're eating a salad for lunch. And I'm like, yeah, but I also eat and drink crazy shit at dinner. <laughs> like I also <laughs> will eat like anything. Like like my friends are like you eat. You sometimes you eat the worst shit. And I'm like, yeah, well, burn it off if I walk you know twenty miles or whatever. But I, I was confused. I, so Dave was what Dave was saying is you're the equivalent of if you were a baby he'd be calling you you're such a good eater is what he'd be saying yeah, to you. yeah. Yes. but Alan's, Alan is a, a, a healthy looking svelte man and again as I always say when we were in Japan he was fitting in the extra large 
yeah, yeah. That, that's <laughs> basically like that. Well, that's funny. Like I went to Japan. I'm I'm about 5'10", 140. So like I went to Japan and I was enormous. Like I was, that's not true, but I was, you know, I would wear like a large, I would wear like a large blazer or whatever. And they, they like, I, you know, I'm, I'm by no means an Adonis, but the, I remember the lady measuring me. The first time I went with you, we went to like Izaton or something. We got, we, I was getting a suit made or something. And they, the lady measuring me was like, oh, wow, are you, uh, looks like you work out. Are you a professional athlete? I'm like, I'm a comedy writer. <laughs> and that's not to say, I'm not, that sounds like a brag because it's like, yeah, oh, there's, I'm not ripped, but it was like, I'm just, I, I work out semi regularly at like an LA fitness. <laughs> it's like, they were, they were very surprised. And again, I couldn't, there's no shoe size, at least when I lived there oversized 10. I think it's yeah, different. If now. I'm an extra large or a large, you are a, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's not, not, not your size, not your size. Um, unfortunately, Alan Yang cannot join the big boy Asian club. <laughs> <laughs> I love that club. By the way, some of my favorite characters in that club, that's just like, that's like a, that's a, that's a fun, the also honorary big boy Indian club is fun too. It's like big Indian dudes. Like I love that. Like big Korean guys. Like, man, I love it. I love a big Indian guy or big Korean guy who can kick your ass. Like that's kind of fun. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> But if you don't know, uh, I'm I'm good friends with Alan, and he's talking about writers' room. But you're writing a show with Maya Rudolph right now. Right? Yeah, it's a fun one, man. I, it's so funny. Like there, you know, obviously I've done a little bit some more dramatic stuff recently. You know, I did a movie called Tiger Tail, which is a drama, and there's a new season of Master of None out that's uh, that's a little more dramatic, starring Lena Waithe and Naomi Aki. And then this show is like, we it's funny, man. It's like a funny show and we want it to be fun and welcoming and warm and, and sort of optimistic and all that stuff while also, you know, not being an idiotic show. Hopefully it'll be meaningful as well. But yeah, this one's a comedy and yeah, we're writing it now. Who's going to stream it? Uh, it's on Apple and I co-created it with uh, my friend Matt Hubbard and we did a show called Forever together with, uh, with Maya on Amazon uh, a couple of years back. So yeah, reunion of sorts. And Alan is always busy, always working. When do you ever get burned out? Because, I mean, how many projects you got going on right now? I'm being warned about that. <laughs> In some capacity or other, if I look at it, it's like seven or eight or something. It's like seven or eight shows and, you know, a couple movie ideas always kicking around that, that I'm always thinking about too. The, the way I look at it is my focus is usually going to be on stuff I'm writing or directing that very second, right? So that very second I'm in the writer's room right now, it's the Maya show. And okay, we're going to go shoot that later this year. I don't love to split focus on something else like super writing, 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 but it helps to have collaborators, right? So another thing, you know, I might be working on another thing with disease or someone like that. And okay, we'll start writing that, but I'll do phone calls with that person and, and, you know, really get into that. And when I'm digging into it, I'm digging into it. Then when it comes to producing, like I do have time to devote to that. So it's like, oh, we'll go pitch a show or, you know, in that instance, I like to feel like I'm providing help to these other writers and directors and producers and that I'm additive and that I'm giving notes and helping them craft their scripts and craft their edits and, and, and cut and all that stuff. So yeah, I mean, it ends up being a very busy job, but I think the moment at which I feel like I'm overwhelmed or it's too much or I'm giving other things short change, like if I'm short changing projects, then yeah, that's the time to cut it off. It, it, it's it's reaching, you know, a point where I'm I'm busy, but uh, you know, again, like I said, I have a lot of energy and, and I'm, I feel like I'm productive when I'm working, so. Do you think this constant working mode of Alan Yang, which... I've known you a long time now. It's always working. Is that Asian sensibility or just you? I think a little of both. I think a little of both. I think like, I, I don't, so growing up, it certainly was like, I wasn't like the hardest working kid, but I think my parents had such high expectations and, and 
I was able to do a lot of stuff. I just, I don't know what that is. Like, I think I'm fast at doing some stuff. And so as a kid, you know, I was always fast at doing school stuff. I was, I was okay at sports. I was okay at music. I was like, I was like decent at a lot of different things. And so my parents just kind of packed my day. And it was that, like being involved in a lot of different things, which I think helped make me kind of a rel- more well-rounded type of person for one thing. And then secondly, they had high expectations. So, you know, this is a stereotype, but it was true in my household. It's like, okay, you bring home a 95, like it should be a hundred, right? And so for me, like that meant working hard and that meant like good enough. Usually it wasn't good enough, right? It's like, you gotta, you gotta do better and better, better. So I think all those things combined, you know, I, it's a combination. I think I, I like, I, I look at the power of genetics. You look at like your photos and then you look at your parents' photos, like, damn, like they look alike, right? It's like, there's a lot <laughs> of that. So it's a, there's the power of genetics, but then there's also the power of, of nurture, right? And I think I give my I give my parents a lot of credit and my mom especially because she was driving me to shit and like, you know, encouraging me to do better and honestly holding my feet to the fire when I didn't do well. And so I think her high expectations coupled with the demonstration of hard work because my parents are both incredibly hard workers, that all helped. Um, but I just can't imagine... I just don't like laying around that much. I, I like relaxing. Don't get me wrong. Like I'm not a workaholic. I think that's, I think Dave knows, you know, we hang out enough. So he knows that like, you know, I like having a good time, but I don't know. That's my diagnosis. Which is why it's surprising. It's like, I don't know how you pack in the good times with all the work that you have. And from someone that's a workaholic, I don't actually describe you as a workaholic. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't, I, I, it doesn't stress you out. It doesn't give you like anxiety or dread like me. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe like I love to work, but I hate to work. I mean, I don't know if that makes sense. It's like I don't, I, I try not to lose sleep over work. And I know that sounds crazy because anyone who's really like in, especially the creative industry, but anyone who works super hard, like you do think about it, right? You do think about it all the time. You think about it in the shower, you think about it going to bed. I think you need a mix of, you need that, but you, you, it needs to be a balance. Like you, you gotta be able to, to me, just for mental health and sort of staying happy, like, I don't know. I, I there's no you lesson need to write for me. A, you need to write a book. <laughs> I know that's. A, that's I think what you could add on to your workload is a life coach guru because, <laughs> I mean, you know, your girlfriend says it too. You are possibly the most optimistic, happy-go-lucky person I know, and I just want to. I, I want to drink what you're drinking half the time. Yeah, I, I see. I, and I also like. I I don't want people to hear them think. Oh, you know what? Like, I bet he's like. He's got demons. Like, it's really dark in there. I'm like, I don't think <laughs> no. it, it actually is. I'm t- being totally honest. Like, I'm not happy all the time, of course. Like, you know, I get bummed out. And like, you know, when there's setbacks, I get annoyed and like, you know, I get angry. But I do generally look on the bright side of things. And it's not conscious. I'm not trying to do that. It's just how I'm wired. I don't take any credit for that. But it does help in adverse situations, in times of crisis, in times of, you know, just work emergencies or, or all kinds of things. Like, I think it helps to be optimistic because it gives you a resilience. Like, I, I, can't, I can't stop thinking about like, okay, well, how do we make this a positive or how do, how do we survive this and, and keep going and keep doing the stuff that we love doing? Um, I, I don't know. That's, that's the part of it that seems to me like this is ineffable. I, it's not something I'm controlling, but it's real. Like, I really think it's real. Like for me, like I'm a happy person and I, like, I, that's, not, that's not a credit to me. That's just how I feel. Ying, this is how I, I feel about whatever he just said. I don't know. <laughs> I know he thinks that, but my, like how I think about Alan is he's so smart Mm-hmm. That he processes the outcomes of 
the pros and cons of being in a depressed state or the negative outcomes. And he processes it so quickly. He's like, well, there's only so many outcomes. He's, it's just a, it's just logical. He's like, okay, <laughs> yeah, it's so- I put it in a box. Let me compartmentalize it and I'm going to move on. It's there, yeah. but I can, I can operate. I can, you know, walk and talk. Like anxiety is an inefficiency that he has to eliminate in order to continue (laughs) to thrive. Although, don't you think, Dave, that just out of frame, we're looking at Alan on Zoom right now. I'm just 100% sure he's like stabbing himself in the thigh with a pen throughout this conversation. (laughs) No, I haven't spent enough time with him. He is unequivocally the most well-adjusted human being I know. (laughs) It's weird because I'm looking at the two of you side by side. It's like two sides of the coin. Like the result is the same. Dave is also a hyper-productive, very hardworking person. No, 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 no. Let's be honest. I just, you're much more. Alan is a very smart person. He could be doing anything. I could not be a derivatives option trader on Wall Street. Alan could do that. Alan could be a medical doctor trying to solve cancer. Instead, he's trying to make movies and make people laugh and make yeah. people cry. It's like he could choose to well, do anything. Let me ask you both of you guys this then, because Dave also works on a ton of things simultaneously. And Alan, obviously you were just saying, you know, you you just wrapped Master of None. It's it's season three is out. It is and Tiger Tail, they were both more, I'm not gonna say like more serious. They were like, like you said, more somber, more uh, you know, like a different tone than comedy. Is it helpful to be working on a variety of projects at the same time, or do you feel like you have to compartmentalize, or do they inform one another? You know, like same for you, Dave. Like, is it helpful to work at a ton of things, or does that stress you out? I need it. There, there's an author named Stephen Johnson. He's on John Holliman's podcast, and he just has a book called Extra Life. And like every year and a half, he's come out with like a best-selling, amazing book for like the past sixteen years, and he explains that he needs to do a book every year because there's a lag time. And in between that lag time, between the editing and the publishing of it, he's got three or four other book ideas that he's doing research on. And one book feeds another book. And I just feel like it's it's almost like playing multiple games of chess simultaneously. And some are better at than others. And I have known Alan for some time now, and I can't, I don't think there's ever been a time where he hasn't been working on at least three or four projects. And that's just the way it is with him. And I feel the same way. I need to do it. But he 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 just handles it better. <laughs> I don't know about that. But I, I definitely think I, I like doing multiple things. And I like, you know, as long as you're able to focus and give the thing that's kind of top of mind the time and space it needs, right? And, and obviously, apart from that, if you're juggling just enough things so you feel busy but not overworked. I, I know that sounds trivial or, or common sense or, or obvious, but man, you got to know when to say no. You got to know when your limits are and, and hopefully we're within that. But also I do like, I do think going back and forth can help, you know? And I do think it informs your life, your sort of, uh, your mental state, your, you know, what's going on in your emotions and your you know, all of those things go into your work ultimately. Like, right, right. Like I literally just said, it's like, okay, well, I've worked on a couple more dramatic works. And then it's like, it's really fun to go into comedy again, man. Being in a writer's room and hearing these other hilarious writers pitch jokes and 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 man, that's that's a good feeling. And it I think it's good. It's balanced, right? It's like we we liken it to albums, right? It's I mean, look, the the greatest artists in the world, whether you go back to the Beatles or you know, you look at when Kanye was having his run or Radiohead or whatever redefining yourself, right? Using those previous things to go to the next thing and it informing your next thing. And so 
you know, Radiohead didn't write Creep a million times. They did Kid A, right? They, and then you're like, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, Kanye didn't do the same. The Beatles didn't stick with I Want to Hold Your Hand. They just, you know. So again, I'm, I'm not comparing either of us creatively to the Beatles, but I'm saying that's a goal to aspire to, right? It's like, can you challenge yourself? Can you use all the things in your life that are going on? And in my case, some of that's work, right? Some of that is all of the projects you're doing. They combine. And by the way, I get to now in a capacity as a producer, work with tremendously talented and creative writers, directors, producers in their own right. And I get to learn from them. I get to learn so much from Mm -hmm. them. I I was having a meeting with the director today. I'm like, if you happen to come direct our show, I'm going to sit back and I'm going to work with you. And I'm going to tell you what I think about, you know, each take or whatever, if, if necessary, but I'll also learn a lot from you. I guarantee you the amount I don't know about directing could fill vast oceans. So let me learn from good people that I'm collaborating with. That's the other bonus of all of this, you know? Uh, one of the things I, I learned a lot from you whenever you and your other sort of uh, writers are talking about your script or show idea is how ruthless you guys can be with each other. And it's not personal, right? Yeah. It's not. But there's something about that sort of thick skin that I wish every other industry sort of took from because I think it's an incredibly powerful skill set to learn how to punch something up, right? That term is used for comedy writing, punching something up, right? It, it, it is wild. I think when people who, so for the people who are uninitiated, you know, look, in a, in, a, in a writer's room, especially a comedy's writer's room, you sit around, it's five people or eight people or 12 people or whatever you might have on the staff. And you talk about the show, first of all. But then after that, you, when you start getting into the writing of it, you have a script and maybe you're changing jokes and maybe you're fixing things and maybe you're killing ideas or adding new ideas. And your, I, I would say 95 to 99% of your ideas are rejected. Even the showrunner's ideas, right? It's like you're just, you are just exploring the studio space, right? And it's, it is brute, like I, it's, it's second nature to me because, you know, I've been doing it for long enough now, but I think I for, even I forget when you first get into that room and you're pitching ideas, how how naked you feel. Think about stand-up comedy, right? It's so many people's greatest fear. We were walking around in New York the other day. I was walking around with my friends. We walked past an outdoor stand-up set and they were like, oh my God, that is my biggest fear. That is my that is my number one nightmare. Can you imagine standing up in front of a group of strangers and just pitching jokes and just saying jokes and like the 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 absence of laughter? I mean, how horrible is that? Imagine that that's kind of <laughs> oh my, my job, God. right? That's kind of like that's kind of my job is dying in a stand-up room like 8 hours a day or whatever. <laughs> Um, and look, it's, the stakes are not as high because eventually you get to know these people and they're your friends and hopefully there's a trust that's built in the room. But it is that. And by the way, it, like like Dave said, everything gets killed. A, a script will sometimes get rewritten from the studs up from zero. You you might not keep a single word of the first draft, even if you wrote it yourself. That happens all, you, you take that and del- just hit delete on the whole thing. That happens all the time. And good stuff comes from that. Good stuff comes from that because- you got to have the best idea win. And, and and in the best rooms, I think it's regardless of who utters the best idea. You know, that's the best thing. I think that's just so powerful, Ying. I mean, did you have that with your creative process when you edited McSweeney's and stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, I am i don't have the thick skin that Alan has. And I know, Chang, when you hear him describing that, I know, like, I think... That's what I want all the I time. I imagine that's like the most romantic thing you've ever heard in your entire fucking life. Dave. I love it. Like, what he's talking about right there. Because that's what... <laughs> He's, you know, I'm trying to get better at it, but I, <laughs> getting ideas killed is the most painful fucking thing in the world to me. <laughs> like, I, I, don't, I don't know. It's, it's the same thing when, you know, I take, I take that same idea when, you know, a bunch of chefs are working on a dish. 
I just think it's critically thinking something through. I, I want somebody, if if there's like a room of 10 chefs and every chef says, this is a great dish, we fucked up. Mm-hmm. Somebody, mm-hmm. even if it's a great dish, should empathize and use their imagination and take the position, well, I hate this dish for these reasons. Because it's not going to hurt anything and it's probably going to make the dish better. It's so healthy too. And again, I've kind of even forgotten this after a year of COVID and like a year of writing shows and movies in a different way. You know, I've had a different experience on almost every show I've ever worked on. For this season of Master, for instance, a lot of that show was me and Aziz on phone calls. It wasn't a writer's room. It was me and Aziz on phone calls. And then, you know, Aziz would call Lena and Aziz would, okay, so she would help write the scripts. And and so that was very intimate, right? That was very much, okay, well, tell us about how you're feeling about your career. And um, what about, you know, what's going on in my relationship or Aziz's relationship? That all works its way into the show, but it's not a comedy writer's room, right? That That's a very different thing. So now it's been jumping back into this show and it's it's a staff of people and by the way like a lot of them come from different backgrounds from you they're different races they're different genders they're different sexual orientations and that to me is like that's a great thing number one number two I forgot the like ecosystem of a room like the ecosystem of a writers room is so interesting right it's like over time you find out more about people we're still in the feeling out process because the room's relatively new but it's a delight it's like oh my god these are all funny people but they all come from sort of different places different schools of comedy and like Dave was saying there's almost never a universal approbation for a joke or something. It's like, okay, well, you know, there's always a contrarian or for a story, right? It's like, okay, there's people who are, uh, one one saying they had like in, in writer's rooms a long time ago is like, there's fire starters and firemen, right? There's people who like want to sort of stir shit up, right? And then there's people who put it out, right? And so sometimes <laughs> you have a couple of contrarian people in the room, right? You, you know, you have people who are like, well, is that the best idea? Or what if we did it totally differently? And that's helpful, and then you have people who are consensus builders, and then you have people who are just constantly pitching, and then you have people who are a little more quiet and thoughtful. So, but it, you know, that's all a long way of saying it's fun to have a room and it's fun to listen to smart, creative people discuss ideas and debate ideas. And, and ultimately, you know, me and Matt make the decisions and try to figure out what goes into the show. But boy, it, it is helpful to have a lot of smart people on your side. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you 
and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Going back to the Master of None sort of genesis of the season three script, you know, I remember when I was filming with Lena a breakfast, lunch, and dinner, she was talking about it. And that was like almost three years ago. Oh, it's so long ago. Mm. I was like, oh my God, we were talking about it in the car off camera. And I was like, wow, that was a long goddamn time ago. And the framework didn't really change. But then between 36 months ago and today, that's like 21 projects for you too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the other thing, right? It's like it's like reshoots on a movie and then, you know, selling a different show to Apple and selling this show to Netflix or whatever. And then people, I think, I don't know if they even believe me when I say we had been thinking about a season like this pretty much back to season one. I mean, we we honestly did. If you look at those episodes, season one, you'll see very surreptitiously, quietly, it'll say, it says Master of None presents and then the title of the episode. So Master of None presents Parents or Master of None presents Thanksgiving or whatever. In tiny font, it says presents because we kind of knew in the back of our head, down the road, we want we may want to take a departure. We may want to feature other characters or tackle other tones. And so it's always going to be Master of None Presents, whatever we want it to be. In this case, it was Moments in Love. And, you know, we centered uh, Denise's character. But we had been talking about a, a romantic story about Denise's life from her perspective since season one, since we did the episode about called Mornings about, about Dev's relationship with Rachel, since especially season two, after the Thanksgiving episode, we'd like, yeah, we'd like to see a Denise season and we'd been talking about this particular framework, as you said, for years, for years. <laughs> and I remember you guys having this conversation before you guys won the Emmy. So that, how many years ago was that? It's a long I mean, this, time ago. That was like, oh, how do you guys base something on Lena? And that was like five years ago, maybe? That's a yeah. long time ago. To see that actually happens, amazing. And and think about the change. I, I mean, I, there's an old photo like on my Instagram of like me, Aziz, and Lena and it was at some panel after probably season one or two, we look totally different, right? It's like, well, I look similar, but no, no. You know who looks similar is, I, I'm talking about more about what I'm wearing. I'm just wearing like a tie, but, but <laughs> you know, Denise, you know, I called him Denise, Lena cut her hair and she, you know, she has a cool ass wardrobe and all this shit. And it's like, she just looks like a different person. And it's like a lot has happened in all our lives. And it's just interesting to, see something evolve when we kind of had the kernel of an idea a long time ago and then talking about it and collaborating with people and then getting Lena's input and then getting Naomi Aki's input, just unbelievable actress in the show and having her rehearse with us and 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 sort of gleaning stuff from her perspective and putting that into the show. That all goes in. It's this stew that just gets ideally richer and richer and richer. And then, by the way, you're then pairing back. It's the editing process and literally and figuratively, literally editing the show and, and editing the scripts and editing while you're on set and sort of figuring out what to put in after all these people add stuff in. So, um, yeah, no, it's 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 been a long time coming and, and we're really, we're really happy it's out there in the world. It was a process to make for sure. That's an understatement, but yeah. Well, I thought it was a beautiful, beautiful season three. I, I, I texted the, you that and I, I particularly was moved by episode four. I mean, I think each season you have one episode that's a little bit different than the rest of the, the episodes. And and uh, I was like, how the fuck did you guys write that? How, how, you guys, I mean, I've been part of that process. I've seen the process. None of you guys have helped, you know, been part of the birthing process. Like, how did you, the IVF, the whole thing? I, I mean, how did that happen? 
Yeah, I, I think I have to give a lot of credit. First of all, a lot of credit to Aziz because it's, you know, the amount of work he put into working on that script was was paramount. But but it, it also speaks to, I think, like like you said, it's a little bit surprising because if you look at the, you know, some of the standout episodes of the show, a lot of it was based on us, right? It's like parents is like me and Aziz talking, right? It's like a, us having a conversation and then us talking to our parents and then figuring out, what it's like to be, you know, uh, the, the children of immigrants and what that gap in communication is like and all that stuff. And then the Thanksgiving episode, it's like, oh, we get that, that somewhat based in Lena's life, right? It's like, we talked to Lena and we talked about her family and we talked about her relationships growing up and, and coming out and what life was like for her. Then you look at this episode, which, uh, you know, again, is one of the things we're most proud of ever having worked on. It's, it's an amazing episode. And in my opinion, um, and and I say that because crediting the other people, not my contribution to it. But but yeah, it's 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 one of my favorite episodes, certainly of this year, and, and probably in the history of the show. And a lot of that, since it's not our personal, 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 personal experience between the three of us, it was research, right? It's watching documentaries and it's interviewing people and it's getting those stories that may not be in the books, right? It's people on the show we ended up talking to. I, I won't even disclose who, but you know, people who've gone through that kind of thing. And, and for those of you who don't know, it's, it's, I don't want to spoil too much, but it, it has to do with uh, fertility and, and, and the troubles that women go through to, to get pregnant. And, and, you know, obviously that's not the case with any of us yet, right? That's not the case of any of us. And, and so it was really building empathy, building the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes really through work and research and interviews. And, and you know, we had a smattering of that. We started learning to do that the first couple seasons. Like, even if you look at an episode like New York, I Love You, which was a second season episode where we followed different people around New York who weren't the main characters, we interviewed people. We interviewed uh, taxi drivers because one of the episodes, one of the stories was about a taxi driver. We interviewed doormen for a building. One of the, one of the sections was about a doorman. And then one of the characters happened to be deaf. So we interviewed, uh, you know, deaf people and, and, and got stories from them. So that was kind of, you know, a little bit of a germ of a, of, of a way to do things. And, you know, this is, I think, pretty commonplace for people who work in the more dramatic space. But for us as people coming from comedy, it was kind of a revelation. It was getting mm-hmm. these ideas from people and, and not ideas for stories necessarily, but just details from their lives and perspectives and how you felt in a certain situation. All of that, again, goes into the stew and helps you make something that feels real. And then it's refining, right? It's refining not just the scripts, although those were rewritten over and over and over again, but then on set, figuring out what feels genuine, what feels emotional, what feels truthful, and what doesn't. It's funny, Alan, you know, you talk about, to hear your process and to hear you talk about, you know, watching documentary to educate yourself about the, the subject you're going to write about. I, I mean, I, I love what you've done in this season, basically <laughs> splitting off the camera to follow Lena's character, you know? And, and it reminds me so much of, like, you're making a scripted comedy drama series here, but it's almost like documentary in its, in its form, right? Like, Dave and I are both huge fans of Formula One, Drive to Survive on Netflix, another Netflix streamer. And it's just like, wherever the interesting story is, is where the series goes, right? And it's like, this, the interesting story in this season, I, I know this is not, I, I understand the difference between real life and uh, television, but the real, but the story in the universe of Master of None is most interesting with Denise here, right? We pick up and like her life has become sort of the driving force here. And so the camera sort of like naturally panned over there and just started following. I think it's super interesting to see you guys take that approach almost of like documentarians of the world you've created. That, that's a great way of putting it. And and even more than that, you know, it, it was 
commented on a little bit season two where it's like, oh, they're interested in everyone in New York, right? It's it's kind of about, it's curiosity. It's open-mindedness. It's, it's the curiosity of the world around you and the people around you. And I love, that's my favorite stuff. It, it's just when it's capturing real moments, capturing what it feels like to be that other person or to be that in that world. You know, this is a strange comparison in some ways, but if you look at what Chloe Zhao did in in Nomadland, you know, all everyone in that movie is a real person except mm-hmm. for Francis McDormand, David Strait there, and I think his son in the in the movie. The rest of it is real people, and you just can't find people like that. <laughs> like watching it, like I was like, these can't be actors. I was like, these can't be actors. It's I, with all due respect to actors, it's like some <laughs> people you can't duplicate, right? You just can't duplicate it, and. You know, look, our show doesn't go that far, but there is, I mean, since season one, it's been like, you know what? Lena's going to play someone who's kind of like Lena because it's like, that's who she is. And Eric Gorham's going to play someone who's kind of like Eric. And Aziz is going to play someone who's kind of like Aziz in some ways. And especially in comedy, it works really well a lot of the time because that's just how people are funny. And so it's like, people are funny when they're like themselves and they're able to do that. I'm not saying that you can't inhabit a character, but that's kind of our ethos. And that was kind of really working for us well. But you were you're right in the sense that the most interesting story was here. We talked about a version that was, that's yeah, moments in love and it's dev and a woman. And it's just like, they're kind of, and you know what? We've seen more of that. I got to say, we've seen more stories like that than stories like this one. And mm-hmm. for so many reasons. For sure. So when we meet Denise in the at the top of season three, I'm not going to give anything away, but you know, she's, she's successfully written a, a, a New York times bestseller and working on the next one, but it's not coming, right? She's having trouble getting the next one out. Let me ask this simply. Is that, is that something that either one of you recognize? Like, she's got this huge pressure to deliver the second one. And, like, it's, it's like success-induced writer's block. Do either one of you feel like you've encountered that? I think all of us do, man. I think anyone who's had anything that's even mildly successful is like, oh, shit, I got to do this again. Like, And then you realize that it's not even doing it one more time. It's doing it 10 more times or 20 more times. Then you're never going to feel, I think... Again, I said all that stuff about we being pretty happy all the time. I think you're always going to feel like a fraud some percentage of the time. And it's almost like, I think Dave's talked about this at length. He certainly has in the past and maybe still does. But you got to, you know, it helps to overcome that by just doing the next thing. And I think in this case, it was so real for all of us. I think all of us have experienced some level of that. You know, obviously for this show, we, you know, we, we won some awards for it and, and, Alina obviously has gone on to to tremendous success as well, but there's always the pressure of what's the next thing, what's the next thing, what's the next thing. I think it's relatable in the sense that no matter what the scale of what you're working on is, God, you you might be like, it was that the only thing, you know, was that the only thing, and am I no good? And 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 that's like that's a real that's a real emotional issue, I think. Mm -hmm. Spoiler warning: the next few minutes of this episode contain references to some plot details of Master of None season three. Please proceed at your own risk. I mean, fuck it. People watch this series regardless of whatever I say, and they should. But I really like the fact that she tanked her second book. And I I loved that she was at a cubicle. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, we love that too. <laughs> oh, man, that was like, this is real. This is real. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, that happens, man. Not, these stories almost, are not told. No, it, it's not. I remember being in that office shooting that stuff. I was like, God damn. Like, I thought about the story because I thought about, like, think about, you know, you're in, you get a rave review in the New Yorker and you're you're on Oprah's bestseller list or whatever. And, the, and then you're working in a cubicle. That happens. That happens. It, it's It's more common than you think, you know. It's And by the way, like, 
you can be celebrated for doing that too. It's not everyone's going to make a hit every time out of the gate. That's not that's not possible. You know, it's just not possible. And I liked how Lena's character accepted that. That just maybe it's not in her bag right now to to be that best-selling author and that's okay too, right? So, I love the maturity of the book. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Can I have a can I pitch this is I want to put this out in the world like keep pay attention to what happens at the very end of the season and think about how much of this last episode of the last episode is what Lena wants or or what Denise wants or or how much of it actually happened. I think that that's something interesting to think about. Look at what happens at the very end of the of the show because that's the end of the mm. season and it's like that's the end of this chapter and like something interesting happens. We thought about it a lot and it's watch what happens when she's working in the cubicle at the beginning of the episode and and think about all of it. That's all I'll say. I don't want to spoil too much. But also, it's like, you know, uh, there's a, any number of interpretations that there's no right or wrong in, in my mind and, and in Aziz's mind well, too, I think. I think <laughs> I have your interpretation was pretty clear with the dog room or whatever, the stuff puppy <laughs> the, room. The teddy bear room. Oh, I got to send yeah. you a photo of me in the teddy bear room with yeah. a fucking mascot. <laughs> and like, 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 yeah, it's, I mean, oh, anybody God. that sat at a cubicle understands but you don't want to be there and you'll think about anything yeah, <laughs> yeah. possible to not be there. <laughs> I think it's so amazing how you, you know, you're sort of getting at it, but like you set Denise up with this kind of idyllic thing in the beginning, right? Not just in terms of like where she lives. She lives in a beautiful home, a bucolic home, but in terms of like her relationship, right? Like it's all, it's perfect. And she gets accused by her partner of like, you don't want any of this. Like, this is all just for show. And it's so interesting the way you've, like, you're talking about like what we, what we want versus what we think we want. What we like, do we want the success? Is the cubicle thing actually hell for us? Like, what is, what is like truly uh, important? And when her partner says that and Lena doesn't, and Denise doesn't argue with it, I think it's so powerful because it's the first time as the audience, you're like, oh, I was just wrapped up in this too. Like, I have no idea like why I thought this couple was perfect or why I thought this home was desirable. And like, I just sort of accepted it. And and like that, you know, it, it plays into our expectations. And to hear what you're saying about the finale, I do, I legitimately have goosebumps about like that think subversion of what we want. You know, it's crazy. Yeah, think it's it's, and I heard someone put it, I think much more eloquently than this, but something along the lines of, Season one is is about not knowing what you want, right? It's kind of about, you know, decision fatigue and, and all these possibilities. Season two is about wanting something and not being able to get it in some ways, right? It, it's it's and then season three is what if you get what you want? Like what then? And and is it really was that what you really wanted all along? And what mm -hmm. are we striving for? And what you know, what is the end game? And what is and that's something that I think we're all struggling. I think all that's the thing. It's like I think Aziz Lena and I are playing all, along, man. Yeah, Everybody's playing along with Everyone's you too. playing along. And 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 that's what we're saying. Like Aziz Lena and I, like, you know, we have changed since season one as people. You know, it's like a, you know, it's just like there's a lot, there's a lot going on. And 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 I think their season reflects that for sure. Can I ask, because um, I had to, uh, <laughs> when you were filming the Fertility Clinic, was that in London or was that in New York? There's a little secret, uh, yeah, about the season. It was essentially entirely filmed in London. <laughs> so yeah, it was all the UK and and that beautiful uh, the farm stuff is kind of like outdoor. You know, it's 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 up it, not upstate England, but basically a simulation of upstate New York in England and. All of that house, like the the house is beautiful. It's beautiful work from Amy Desi Amy Williams, our, our production designer. Uh, that's on a stage. That whole that's oh, all no a shit. stage. Everything is on a stage. This is really wild, but 
we were finishing the season. Obviously, this is the height of COVID. And as we were finishing, we were shooting this all in a building in the middle of London. And at the very end of the season, our line producer emailed us and said, hey, just to let you know, um, they're going to start giving out COVID vaccines while we shoot the show, like in another part of this giant building. So I was like, this is, <laughs> oh this is so weird. We're in just a building in the middle of London. We're shooting this beautiful house, but it's all a stage. So that's the power of production design and the power wow. of, of, of totally shooting on a stage. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's seamless. It's it's really you know it's it's beautiful. That house is beautiful. Amy did a great job, and and um, I I really love the the, the the fake upstate stuff too. Just seeing uh, Lena and Naomi out there in the in the wild and with the chickens and the sheep and man the sheep like you know Lena running after the sheep and there's this cut scene where she falls down and you know we didn't get it on camera but yeah it's just like I'm just remember shooting it now. But nothing was nothing was filmed in New York. I think there's just some exteriors, basically. So, but all that fertility stuff, and yeah, that's all. That's all. New, uh, that's all uh, UK. And so, like when when you're like, okay, and now the doctor has to present uh, Denise with a huge medical bill. All the British staff are like, "What are you talking about? That doesn't happen." <laughs> yeah, that's right. Like, wait, what? Private insurance? Like, oh, you don't have the insurance? Yeah, this is. Hey, you yeah, know, it's, it was like a, like I I don't know if you felt this at all, Dave, but like a crazy moment was when in, in the first episode, you know, uh, Dev Aziz's character comes and has like a huge blowout fight with his partner at this dinner at Denise's house. And Denise says to Naomi Aki's character, wait, I'm sorry. I'm totally forgetting her name. Alicia. Alicia. Sorry. Like, don't, don't do this thing. Like, don't project like their shit's not our shit. Like it's not, you know, just cause they're going, having these like crazy arguments and saying all this stuff. It's not, doesn't mean anything for us. But like, of course it does. Of course, of course it does. I was watching. I was like, fuck, this is happening to me right now. I'm sitting here. I'm just like, I, you can't watch this show without being like, oh my God, am I having these conversations? Like what's happening in my own life? And uh, yeah, fuck you, I Alan. Agree. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't appreciate <laughs> you guys all being in relationships and being able to understand this bullshit, man. It's the relationship. Up better. It doesn't make us any better being in them, I'll tell you that. <laughs> it does not it does not make it better and it, it may in fact make things worse when you put them on screen. So, no, it, it no, it's certainly yeah, I mean it, it, it that's the highest compliment you can get in some ways is like, "Oh yeah, I felt that. I felt that I I felt that myself and it felt real to me and it made me think about my own relationship." Because ultimately, like that's the thing we care about most, right? That's the that's the thing we care about most. It's just like it's it, it's reflecting life. It's a reflection of, of what we're going through, and and yeah, hopefully, hopefully it's not too painful when people watch it, but it has no, that sort of great. that air of reality in it. It was great, and I I, I knew it was gonna be awesome. Um, so different than what I was expecting. So uh, I, I think people are going to really enjoy it, especially if they watch season one and season two. But um, um, you know, I was just thinking totally different topic. When I first started doing podcasts and Simmons told me, hey, you should try to do a pre-opening diaries. Yang and I, this is how crazy our lives have been. In between the uh, season three, before you guys even shot it, three years ago, we were trying to figure out how to find time to do a podcast, except that Alan didn't have time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we wait. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think our schedules would have worked out. To be honest, no I think way. we dodged a bullet because I think There's we would have no pulled our worked. hair out. We would have pulled no. our hair out. <laughs> once every crazy. three years, an episode enters your feed of the the Chang and Yang show every three years. Yeah, it's Chang and Yang, right? Oh, it was supposed <laughs> to be Chang, Chang versus Yang. Yeah, Chang versus was. Yang a debate show. <laughs> Just like oh, also like I think there was a thing where like I usually take the positive and you take some some one of the negative, which is true, pessimistic view. But I'm glad I'm glad like you guys have a great show going. 
and I get to show up and hang out. Like that's fun. <laughs> you don't get to, you don't have to do all this fucking work. <laughs> ah, it's less work for me, also. Yeah, it's less yeah, work. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I want to get you out of here, but we talk about being Asian a lot more, just even our private conversations and all of our work. Uh, if you haven't seen Tiger Tail, please go watch it. It's on Netflix as well. But you know, one of the things I feel like we always talk about, just in general, is getting more people to become actors, to become screenwriters, to become <laughs> comedy writers, to become, I mean, not chefs, but just something that you're not supposed to necessarily do. Can you give people a frame of reference or sort of like a state of the union? Like, do we have enough Asian American actors? Uh, we have a lot of great ones. We have a lot of great ones. But by the way, I'll take more. Number one, I'll take more. But number two, <laughs> I think there's a lot of actors who have yet to be discovered. It's one thing that's been great about uh, dating Christine. You know, she's she's an actor. She's she's Taiwanese American, and you know, she has a bunch of friends who are all great actors and actresses. And 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 part of it is they haven't been given the chance. They haven't been discovered. They're not being offered things off the bat. Because you know, in the world of acting, it's like there's a straight offer. Someone just calls you and gives offers you a part. It's like that's so rare in the Asian American actor world because they haven't had the, the the opportunities yet right so we're 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 cresting something in the sense that look look you look at this year it's it's you know Steve Young and Riz Ahmed were nominated for 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 best actor right we're we're getting somewhere that wasn't possible 5 10 15 years ago that being said i i still agree with you dave maybe just cuz we're old but i still think i don't think asian american kids are being encouraged as much as some other kids maybe to go into the arts or go go do something weird or play in a punk rock band or become a rapper or you know go into acting or you know, go to film school or whatever it is I love that man that's my favorite thing like that <laughs> we talked about this before but you know I, I was talking to, to to Bill Simmons about Shohei Otani and I was like in the back of my mind I wish he was like you know a fucking, you know, weed smoking kid from New Jersey or something. <laughs> just like became like a weirdo who just like Asian American kid who like became an athlete. It's like just was an unexpected, you know, type of dude. Cause I'm looking for that. I'm looking for that in 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 our not our role models, but just people out there in the world, right? People out in the world that people think of when they think of Asian American. I would love there to be a diversity of types of people in that world. Right. And this is conversation we have all the time. It's not that I'm not a huge fan of, you know, Ohitani or any of the Asian athletes that are not American. Like, <laughs> I love it. Amazing. I love it too, yeah. <laughs> when Hideki won, you know, the Masters, un unbelievable. But I would have been more excited if he was like from Riverside or wherever, <laughs> right? As you, or from New Jersey, as you say. And I, I think that's a big distinction because people ask me a lot. What do you think can happen with the Asian American movement and awareness? And I think every there's there's not just one way to 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 get greater acceptance and and um, equal opportunities. I think it has to happen in athletics and in acting. I, I love it, man. I think athletics, acting, music, culture, all of that, right? Just things that move the needle and and show us in a different light. Like we got one light, right? We got the light of like you're good at school and like you know you 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 kind of fall in line and you, maybe you're smart and and like obedient and all all that shit. Maybe you maybe you play the violin like like I joked about a long time ago. But <laughs> but you know what we don't have enough of is like you know rebels and 
creative people and yeah, athletes, you know, we, we need 10 more Jeremy Lins, right? It's like all that helps just to, again, diversify what we're seen as and that we're not just Kung Fu and math. You know, that, that's, that would be great. That would be great. Would you argue though, that the, the next hurdle besides even doing that is winning the Oscars and winning, you know, second, first team, all NBA, all pro, all of these things. Like Eugene Chung just on ESPN said, oh, he didn't get an opportunity because he wasn't the right kind of minority. Like these are stereotypes that I think people are still fighting against. And I think when Parasite won and clean, you know, just swept at the Oscars a couple of years ago, I was fucking beyond moved and excited. And director, and it was just amazing. But I feel like in some ways it was a disadvantage for Asian Americans. Asian Americans moving forward. It wasn't just the tax. It was, well, now people are going to think, oh, it's already happened. It doesn't have yeah. to happen again. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And it's it's like, there's just so much, so so much farther to go. <laughs> I hate saying that because it's like, it's it's been a sort of mantra over and over again. But yeah, there's, there's still farther to go, man. We're still at the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg. Um, to to get to get the variety of roles we want and and the variety of stories told, we're just we're just playing from way behind, right? There's a there's a big comeback to come, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, do you feel like we have to win these awards? Is that like just playing someone else's game? It 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 doesn't hurt, and it also wouldn't hurt to have something massively popular, right? You kind of yeah. play both angles, right? You have your you have your massive TV shows, your massive movies. Let's have the blockbusters and the critical acclaim stuff, and ideally, it's both, right? You you, know, you make. Game of Thrones, and it's like it's winning awards, and it's really popular. Like I want to hit them from both sides. I think that's I think that's really important too. You know, it's all great to win awards and have something that's kind of critically acclaimed and not seen by very many people. But I'd love to do both. You know, I'd love to have something really big too. Yeah. Uh, can I shift us back for a second here because we are ostensibly a food podcast, and and say <laughs> once again, Master of None season three is just like totally nailed food. In like the most wonderful way. Like, first of all, I'll watch Lena Waithe eat forever. Just when she's sitting there eating a burger in the front seat of the car, I'm just like, I'll watch Dude. this. Just finish it. Just eat that the scene, whole thing. That's, that scene was so fucking real. We fought to make it long, too. Just like, you stay with her. She's just like it, pensively eating, man. Come on. That was that, that was the bit about the difference like between this era, the, the, the climate the show is coming out in now compared to seasons one and two. It's like, yeah, season one, he's like eating at the best taco truck in New York. Season two, oh my God, he's in Italy. He's like making pasta in Italy. Looks delicious. Season three, you're in your car alone eating a burger. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you're just sitting and by yourself. You haven't seen burger. anyone in a long time. You hate your life. You're sitting alone eating a burger. It's a one minute long shot of you consuming an entire burger. But, yeah. but, then, you, but you also like nailed the sort of like, uh, glossy magazine, upstate New York. Like, oh, you grew this in the garden? Oh, wow. This is so just like this. The ultra foodie conversation dinner was so 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 good. I thought that was uh yeah. I needed hey, a shout out here. Like the the you guys have understood the food vibe so well. It feels real because it is real because we are those people sometimes. You know? <laughs> it's like you get nothing realer than like, you know, it's like we've been around now. It's like we we love food. We're in that world. Like I'm, I'm on this podcast because I'm buddies with Chang and I've known him for years. It's like, yeah, I'm friends with like one of the most prominent chefs in the world. <laughs> I'm going to know about some of that shit, right? <laughs> oh my God. So we're we're going to get you out of here uh, after this question right under an hour, uh, just under an hour, I think. Um, we have to give the audience a low-hanging fruit question. Uh, you're in New York City. I see it in your background. People get hot and bothered. L.A. versus New York. I 
I have no disrespect to New York. I love New York. I want. I miss it tremendously. But I think as a whole, do you agree with this? LA is, all of the surrounding suburbs of Los Angeles is the best eating city in America. Oh, oh, it's, it's, you know, like two and a half weeks ago, I might've agreed with you. And then I came to New York about 17 days ago. I had a great time. I had a great time eating. But but here's the thing. Restaurants are opening back up, right? So here's what, again, I, LA I love. LA I love eating. I love eating in LA, not just because my, my family's there, my mom and dad. And, you know, that, so that's great. And SGV, right? SGV, Koreatown, food trucks, taco trucks, birria, you know, all that stuff. It's great. It's great. It's great. New York, if restaurants are popping and they're popping again in a way that like it just hasn't happened in a long time. Like it's it's like you can go and eat with your friends again and 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 that's just started happening. But in the past week and a half, I was talking to my friends about like I've gone to old standbys and new places and it is so good, man. It is so good. We went to we went to like Silver Apricot last night. And I was like, oh man, I these are flavors I haven't had. It was just so good. It's a new place. It's like we went to Damaka a few days ago. It's like, oh, this seems like really, really interesting Indian that I haven't had before. New York's good, man. Don't and it's all walking distance. It's all Lower East Side, East Village. I'm just walking around. So yeah, that stuff I love. So I don't know, man. I'm gonna. This is the debate. By the way, this is the debate show. This is Chase. Yeah, yeah, this, this is, the this is show. This, <laughs> me disagreeing with you is like that's it, man. And that's I'm by it. no means saying no to New York. I, again, New York excellence to me is just the sheer amount of different kinds of food you can eat in Los Angeles. Like, is just too much. Yeah, but you're driving to get it. I know, that's the shittiest thing. <laughs> so yeah, you got to go to Artesia to eat Indian. You got to go to, you know, SGV to eat Chinese. So I look, I, I, I love them both. And, and I, I, I'm lucky enough to go back and forth sometimes. And man, that's the best. Mm. That's the best. I'm only taking this position because I miss New York. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, yeah, you're, you know, living, living in your part of LA. It's, it's, it's good. But, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll be back. You'll be back. I mean, I was going to say, I thought the distinction was Alan said what he loves about New York is you can go out to eat with your friends. Whereas I think if you're like someone like Dave or myself and you just want to eat by yourself, uh, Los Angeles, you know, you don't have to eat with any fucking friends. <laughs> yeah, that's you know, Alina in your car. Great that's place. my meal every night. Yeah, eating yeah, in your yeah, car. Uh, that's the best place to eat. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I guess I'm jealous of the, of the just the, the ambiance, vibe, and environment of New York. And I, again, I was just there, but it hadn't quite opened up to the extent that it is right now. So, uh, you'll be back in LA soon enough. Don't worry. I will be. I will be. We'll see each. We'll see each other there for sure. All right, man. Uh, anything else you want to plug? Uh, no, I think that's it for right now. Master None season three on Netflix. Check it out, and uh, more stuff to come. But yeah, thanks so much. Cool, cool. Thanks, Alan. Appreciate. All right, guys. Thank you, Alan, for joining us. Always a pleasure to have him on. Uh, I I really want to <laughs> to see life like Alan, man. Like that guy is extremely positive, hyper talented, and one of my favorite people. You know, I'm really blessed to 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 have him in my life, and to see his success has been a great joy. So go check out everything he's done. You won't be disappointed. And if you haven't seen Tiger Tail, go check it out. Again, a beautiful, beautiful movie. That's it, guys. Uh, have a great weekend. Hope you guys had a great Memorial Day. Stay safe. Get vaccinated again if you haven't done so. And uh, we'll talk to you guys next week. Oh, yeah. Give us five stars on our iPod page.